Bee Therapy, conversations about bees with Patrice Newell and Danny Lloyd Pritchard. Hi, Danny, Bee Buddy, great to see you again. Hi, Patrice. Let's get underway here. Quiz question, please. How many times does a bee beat its wings in a second? I wonder if anybody knows that answer straight off. Have you ever looked at a bee? It's pretty awesome. Now, we're going to, we've got a fabulous book. It's a thin book. I do like thin books. It's called Flower Power, Establishing Pollinator Habitat by the American author Tammy Horn Potter. Fabulous author. This is not her only book. No, it's not. And it was way back in 2005 when she wrote Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation, which was a pretty famous book. And it happened just before the colony collapse dramas were happening. Mm. So it was an important book at that time. This book, which is published by, what, 2019 by Wickwasp Press, it's a small book. My copy looks a little bit like it was printed on a colour photocopier, <laughs> so the photos are not that great. But the narrative, written by by a woman who did her PhD in English literature. So number one uh, thing to point out here is that it's beautifully written. It's a personal story about her experience with her beekeeping um, which covers a lot of different things from pollination protection plans. But also in 2014, she became the Kentucky State Aprist. Mm. A fabulous journey, going from a literature expert at a university right through to now an apiary specialist. Incredible. The core thing, because she's in Kentucky, for those that don't know much about Kentucky, We've got the Appalachian Mountains alongside of the US, so they go right up the east coast of the US into Canada, down Kentucky, South Carolina, Kentucky into Tennessee. Where she actually lives is in the eastern side where it's coal mining country. Mm. And there's a big connection there for us because Kentucky also has a horse racing industry, just like the Upper Hunter, which is full of coal mines and full of the horse racing industry. So there were a lot of different things happening for me when I, when I was reading, reading the book. She calls the Appalachian Mountains the sleeping giant of forest-based beekeeping. Mm. So you can imagine how distraught or everybody who ever sees the mining in that neck of the woods, it's so radical, so destructive, different to what we have in the Hunter where we dig great big holes, great big voids. They just take the tops off mountains, so they call it mountaintop mining. And all the stuff, the the soil they remove, they dump into gullies and rivers, so it's rivers disappear. Yeah, you know, very water holes. Yeah, incredible what's happened. When I read this book too, I thought of my, um, when I grew up, I had Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin as the pinups on my bedroom wall. And I kept thinking of me and Bobby McGee. Do you remember that song? Oh, look, Patrice Christopherson. showing your age. I had Boy George on my wall. Oh, well, oh, there's no comparison. I wouldn't admit that. I think, <laughs> anyway, there's a famous line in that from the Kentucky coal mines to the California sun. So I did have that going through my mind as my uh, musical narrative as I read this book. 
Now, what did you think of her claims and doing work to reclaim minds? Because that's really her thing about recreating in a lot of mind areas a pollination, a, a habitat for bees. It's a fabulous dream, aspiration. I'm, I'm really inspired <laughs> by her. I, I take my hat off to her. I've touched on a similar exercise myself in the Hunter Valley, putting beehives on a mine site and using the honey to monitor what the bees were foraging on. So that's, that's where we look at the pollen analysis in the honey, which is covered beautifully in this book. And she goes on to describe various techniques and shows a lot of illustrations of pollen images from microscopes. So she describes particular species that they are using on these mine site rehabilitation activities and then shows right down into how they found in the honey from the beehives they had on the mine sites what they're actually foraging on by looking at these pollen samples under a microscope. So it's it's a huge task, but thank goodness someone's actually starting. And she's got a, a big vision. She's managed to generate a lot of followers, a lot of investment and a lot of action at the policy level to ensure that these degraded land sites where extractive industries has, have just ripped the life out of the soil and she's showing by bringing bees back on site and focusing on the needs of the bees and reforest, like reforesting these areas with bee food, bee forage food, those bee plants as the prime focus, you can re-enliven these sites, you can bring them back and they have huge potential as beekeeping mm. operations as the next industry to really change the perception and the profile of their area. And she talked about soil compaction a lot, soil mm. compaction being the absolute enemy when they were trying to plant trees. But the real star action, I thought, was in the plants that she was recommending. Because if it wasn't a bee-loving plant, you know, she was, let's move on, let's find one. And, of course, so many beautiful American trees uh, are, you know, the tulip tree. Rabinia pseudoacacia, she mentioned too. I've never found that particularly much interest in Australia, but she spoke very highly and beautiful stuff about the timber and how it has a tradition of being used in Kentucky mm. and how they're trying to harvest it, um, coppicing it. So for anyone interested in rehabilitation, likes just a general story about beekeeping even, I think it's it's a, a an entertaining book and being beautifully written. Now, it goes on because okay. she was also in Australia in 2007 at the Appamondia in Melbourne. So she's got a bit of an Australian connection, has Australian friends and another connection in India. So it's really a global book. It doesn't just sort of live its life in Kentucky as well. She has a bit to say about Australia and she does go out on some tours, field studies to look at some of their mines. Her friend, I don't think the friend's named, but planted cape weed across in Australia. Mm. And I thought that was pretty amazing. I mean, in a way, you almost wouldn't admit that, would you, in Australia, <laughs> because you'd be too embarrassed to admit that you had that weed. I've often been pretty horrified that that weed could take over. I know the other weeds I don't mind, but cape weed, because it hugs the ground, the way it hugs the ground, is very hard to get out. When you think about it, though, it is the perfect plant structurally to cover the soil on mine sites and not much grows on these dead soils. 
they have been stripped of life. They've they've lost the microbiome, so to speak. And if you can find anything to grow, to hold the soil, to start recreating that structure of organic matter in the soil, I think any plant can go. Well, it just goes to show that the capeweed that was grown on the Australian mine uh, didn't need native microbes in the soil. It, it was able to take hold and just run. Mm. Yeah, and what it you know is actually a good plant for bees. Have you noticed the colour of the pollen that comes off those flowers? Off capeweed, off I don't capeweed. know. Okay, so it's a great plant coming out of winter. It starts to flower in Australia at the start of spring, so August, September, October. And when you see the bees working it, they love it. They go frantic for the pollen and they fill the little pollen baskets with this bright orange pollen. They're also collecting nectar off it, but it's the pollen that really captures your eye because they will pack as much as physically possible into those pollen baskets. And sometimes they'll just rub it all over their body as well, just to take it back to the hives. It is a loved bee plant, maybe not a loved bee plant for livestock farmers. She also promoted Coreopsis. And we have Coreopsis growing all across the the rail tracks in the Hunter Valley. It's a beautiful site in spring. I've even sort of pulled a few out at different times. It looks like a weed. It's a beautiful plant and she promotes that as a great plant for this land. I, I love the back of the book too where, you know, you've got lessons on how to erect a bee-proof fence. Well, they have bears, right? <laughs> Did I say bee-proof? Did I bear-proof? <laughs> bear-proof. How to erect a bear-proof fence. Uh, and that's really handy. She also um, made the point that the surface mining there, so this is 2019, was nearly 3,000 acres of deforestation that she was looking at rehabilitating. That's huge. Quite a lot. 3,000 acres of deforestation caused by the mountaintop mining. There was one weird thing, I suppose, for me, because she came to Australia and she said, Australia is a socialist country. (laughs) Landowners have very little input into land decisions until the final stages of a company's decision to mine or not. (laughs) I thought that was sort of a weird thing to say. (laughs) A, But we can forgive her. (laughs) I don't hold it against her. And I, I probably says something about the company she's been keeping to arrive at that conclusion. That was the only standout, huh, sort of thing in the middle of a really fantastic book. I think for me, the standout is she's raising awareness of the potential for rehabilitating these extractive industry sites, these open coal mine sites. And just think about what we have in Australia. I mean, how many legacy mines are there just waiting to be rehabilitated? And imagine that as a resource for beekeepers in the future. Fabulous opportunity. And the other thing that stood out is one of the comments she makes towards the end of the book is she's referring to climate change quite a bit. That comes through her discussion, the change in flowering and protein levels and the impact that will have on insects and other pollinators. But she says, we cannot legislate out of the current pollinator crisis. We have to habitate our way out. Good line, isn't it? Mm. I don't know if you are familiar with, it was back in 1968 when Bobby Kennedy, was not long before he was shot, he went to the Appalachians and witnessed what was happening with coal mines that were shutting down there. And I remember as a young girl seeing this footage, it looked like something to me out of the 19th century. It looked like they were walking in a historical sort of film set or something. These were real people 
absolutely struggling, talking about the problem of being in a mining community and what was going to happen to Mm. these people post-mining. And here we are in 2021 having the same conversation about mining communities and what's going to happen to them after. And beekeeping, reforestation and beekeeping is something that absolutely inspires the imagination. Yeah, and possibilities for healing a lot of people, a community, and generating the next wave of economic development in those states. Fantastic. I love the last line. A last line of a book is important. And she says, the earth may laugh in flowers, but we breathe it with trees and feast with bees. Yes. Feast with bees. I love that too. See, great book, Flower Power, Establishing Pollinator Habitat by Tammy Horn Potter. Now, we've been cooking as usual, the last of the seasonal fruit, lots of honey. Where are you at with all your fruit and honey? (laughs) Roasted figs with honey. Yum. So beautiful. Fresh figs. There has been quite a lot this season. And what I've been doing is cutting the fresh, fresh figs in half. Leaving the skins on. Leaving the skins on. Are they purple ones or the older variety ones? I use ones? a mix, the green, the purple, but I do prefer the darker purple coloured figs. They look good, oh, don't they? they look fantastic and I think the flavour's a little bit stronger as well. It's delicious. So I, I cut them in half, lay them on a baking tray, drizzle honey all over them. Yeah, and the cut side up. Cut side up. Place them in an oven, medium heat. Roast them for about 20 to 30 minutes until they start to really soften and almost caramelise. Then I bring them out of the oven, put them straight into bowls, and I've been sprinkling them with a bit of lemon juice, a pinch of salt, and having them with some fresh coconut yogurt while it's still warm, eating them while they're still warm. Oh, it's divine. (laughs) I think you talking about food... (laughs) We need to video this because I'm drooling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to eat it you, right now. You enjoy you enjoy eating. Okay, I like doing that too. I often quarter them because your figs it, are bigger than mine. Well, no, because I like to be able to put one straight in the mouth. Don't you think sometimes if you cut it in half, the fig and you've got a I can fit half a fig <laughs> in my mouth, no problem. For okay, trees. okay. Well, I often quarter it, and I do it the other way, fig side down, so it gets crispy and quite hot, and then maybe not as long. But okay, that also works with peaches. Oh yes, I didn't have many good peaches this summer. It's interesting, some seasons, some fruits better than others, yeah. but it was definitely a fig season. It was. If you've got any figs left, try that one. Look, let's get on to our question. How many times does a bee beat its wings in a second? Okay. <laughs> there is actually an answer here, isn't oh, there? It's incredible that they were finally able to answer that question. And it's over 200 times a second. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's no way you can see that with a human eye. So there had been a bit of a thing in the science fraternity about how some people were saying, oh, science doesn't know the answer for everything and they don't know how many times a bee beats its wing. And so these scientists, some in California at the Institute of Tech, were doing experiments with robots and also high-speed digital photography and then filming 600, 6,000 frames a second, right? Pretty fast to 
see, try and capture what exactly, and being able to count mm-hmm. the number of times. So a lot of effort, a, a lot, lot of, of researchers. It's went, an important question to answer, though. I mean, true. we know how many wing beats a second there are for birds and mosquitoes and other insects, but we didn't know the answer for the honeybees, and now we do. So 230 times every second. Of course, when bees are flying, sometimes they're flying without you know, they're leaving the hive and they're flying to a destination. They don't have a load. They're coming back. They have nectar. They have pollen. It's a lot heavier. And they were wondering, the scientists were wondering, if they're carrying a really heavy load, does that change the number of times the wings are flapping? So they designed a um, an experiment where they had a small chamber filled with oxygen and helium, less dense than regular air, and they observed that some compensation mechanisms. Now, the bees appeared to make up for the extra workload by stretching out their wing stroke, right? But actually, their wing beat didn't change. Mm. So they adjust, stretch out. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Th- physical capacity. Yeah. It's incredible. When you look at the insect and you look at where the wings are located on the body of the bee, so, you know, the insect has it's got the head, the thorax and the abdomen and it's the thorax that really is the mechanism behind the flight. It, it, on the thorax, you've got the legs and you've got the wings. So the wings on a bee, though, we should mention, they actually have two pairs of wings. There's actually four wings, yes. not two wings. But when you look at a bee, you usually only see two wings, what, what appears to be just two wings. And that's because they're actually hooked together with these fine little hooks but they can, like you said, expand mm. the wings to obviously compensate for the extra weight that they have to now carry back to the hive, but without changing the frequency. It's amazing. So the amazing strength creature. of that wing stroke yes. is phenomenal to carry that huge load. Yeah, I know. They thought it was impossible. They talk about bumblebees, you know, it's physically impossible. All the rules of science say they shouldn't be able to fly. Well, in the honeybees, they've found out how they can do that. Amazing. So the question, if you have it again, right, 230 strokes per second. Yeah. Danny, great to talk. See you next time. See you next time. 